Understanding more about human behaviour so that we can assess risks more accurately and build systems that can cope with catastrophes is crucial. But wait a minute. Before we move on to the scenario planning of the future, why don't we stop and take a look at how humans have evolved over the centuries? The University of Cambridge Centre for Risk Studies' second annual meeting, The Human Dimension of Risk, called on Dr. Leslie Knapp, reader, Cambridge Department of Anthropology, to tell us about our kin and our primate ancestors. Well, I think if we study non-human primates, there are many similarities with ourselves. First of all, genetically, we're very similar to non-human primates. As you might know, chimps are 98% similar to ourselves. And even if we think of studying monkeys or lemurs or some other more distantly related primate, they are genetically more similar to ourselves than cats or dogs or certainly fruit flies. And you showed those lovely slides of, of two male wrestlers and then showed, you know... Uh, two uh, male apes and, and then the family picnicking and the animals picnicking and, and then the day centre and, and the animals having their own version of, of the day centre for, for humans. Are we really that closely related? Well, I think when people see animals like primates at the zoo, they always marvel at how similar they look to themselves. If you see a group of chimpanzees rolling around and playing on the floor, it's very often that you say, oh, look at that looks just like a couple of children wrestling and playing on the floor. We do see ourselves when we look at other primates. And you said the one thing about sort of your, the University of Cambridge Department of Anthropology, but... Uh, your field, you spend a lot of time looking and observing your research. So you, you really just have to look to make those comparisons, draw out those similarities. And it must take a long time to reach any conclusion. Well, I study genetics and behavior. So my students and I are often collecting biological samples to study genetics to determine relatedness between primates. And then we also go out into the field to observe the primates. And that takes a lot of patience. You know, Jane Goodall has studied primates in the field for a long time, and she's made it very famous, and it appears very glamorous. And it's not really all that glamorous. We sit out in the dirt and the mud and we are very patient watching our subjects. Primates form coalitions, even if they have no next of kin to cope with threats. Understanding more about what drives group behaviour in times of uncertainty, how primates heard and why could help improve our own human decision-making. After all, they are social beings just like us. There are many observations of primates mobbing um, predators, and that is thought to be something like herding, the kind of herding behavior that you see in humans, where a bunch of individuals kind of all do the same thing in a moment of crisis. And that is observed very often in primates when... Uh, Gelada baboons, for example, see uh, a predator, they will all mob the predator. But even solitary primates will mob a predator. So, for example, spectral tarsiers who live by themselves in solitary existence or gray mouse lemurs who are nocturnal and live solitary lives. If they are in encounter a predator, they will have an alarm call and then suddenly a whole load of gray mouse le lemurs will come together and mob a predator. That's herding behavior. 
here for sure. And, and you talked about even when there isn't any kin or family where people would stick together, actually there, there is still primate coalitions and then you went on to talk about how th- there's sympathetic responses uh, uh, mm. amongst those coalitions. Oh, there is a lot of observation of coalition formation in a natural population of primates. You know, there are a lot of kin uh, living together. So in a natural population of primates, for example, you would have a lot of female relatives living together if they were baboons. If you were talking about chimpanzees, you would have a lot of male relatives living together, a lot of kin. So we see coalitions forming among kin in these kinds of social groups. And these kind of social groups, then you see female coalitions in baboons or male coalitions in chimpanzees. But even in unrelated groups of primates, even in captive populations, you still see coalitions forming. This seems to be a natural kind of social phenomena. Okay, and and one of the more well, the, the more interesting mm-hmm. statement you made at the end was that these groups that you've sat there and observed mm-hmm. in the mud and the dirt mm-hmm. and perhaps hot climates, um, they have a sense of fairness in some primates, you know, and, and the, you know, they're intelligent. You can watch them crack a nut with rocks. Well, there are some very interesting observations that come out of some research that's going on in natural populations. There's a huge new field of study involved in looking at tool use in primates. So there's a huge observation, uh, a community of observers now that are seeing things related to tool use and cognition. But also, there have been studies that have shown that in captive animals, in captive studies, animals, some primates like uh, capuchin monkeys, for example, show that they have a sense of fairness, that when they are taught a task, they expect to be given a reward, and they expect the same reward to be given to their other, uh, their other captive, uh, co-captives, and they think that if the reward is not equitable, they don't want to participate. This idea of the sense of fairness, I think, shows us that, you know, this is not something that we have learned through our own culture, but this is something that's deep and adaptive and probably in our evolutionary past. Converting improved perceptions and behaviour into the reality of disaster management is going to prove tricky, not least because we tend to think in black and white and don't always feel comfortable considering the unexpected. Professor Frank Kelly Statistical Laboratory, Cambridge, and Master, Christ College, summoned up how delegates thought. Well, I found quite fascinating the range of topics that we've spoken about today. We heard about the brain, how it's constructed uh, from Ed Bulmore, who's uh, for the Department of Psychiatry. But then we heard about communication between human beings, and then every level up, primate societies, how they function, how organizations control their risk function. Uh, and one of the things that fascinates me is, is our, how we develop an understanding. Um, we as individuals develop an understanding. When we talk with each other, a collection of individuals will, uh, will, will attempt to understand something. Uh, and our society attempts within firms, within regulatory environments, uh, to, to, to try to understand the world and how we react to it. Um, At different levels, there are different uh, uh, concepts of what an explanation is. And I found it fascinating over today to see those, uh, uh, to see what explanation might mean within the brain at the level of 
conversation between human beings or at higher levels. And, and there were a diverse range of speakers, you know, from, from Bloomberg to uh, a professor of psychiatry. That, that we went over actually to discuss primates and from somebody from the Department of Anthropology, Dr. Leslie Knapp. It was eclectic. It, it, it was quite fascinating, I found. I mean, we, we as human beings don't understand risk that well. We tend to think in black and white and uh, prefer not to deal with uh, uh, areas or to assess probabilities that well. Um, and so I was interested in how, we, how as organizations, we, we tend to deal with risk. Um, quite often, risk gets underestimated. We, 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 we sometimes have a tendency to uh, to group think um, you know within an organization there may be a premium upon reaching a consensus uh, we may be overly sure that something or other is going to happen and have um, uh, not given enough weight to the tails of the distribution those tails um, may be pushed somewhere else you know we may we may have made our own company uh, uh, less likely to be hit by an extreme, but the effect of many companies doing that in, in, a, in, a, in the same industry may make a collective failure more likely. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm struck by the ways in which um, efficiency at a small-scale level can often generate uh, greater risks for, for the large system. But as the global world becomes more challenging and more risky, we do need to understand better what challenges lie ahead, and that too may help the world's poor. Professor Kelly again. Is it just a fashion to look at risk, or, or do you think it has real authenticity to dig down? Oh, I think it does. I think we underestimate risk for the reasons I was saying, and I think that um, uh, the ways in which our society is becoming more efficient um, is often making uh, the risks we run, lower probability but higher consequence. And I think it is important for us to understand that. I don't think it's just the, um, the, the events the last few years in the financial industry. I think it, these uh, sorts of events happen in other... I mean, I'm particularly interested in large-scale networks. So if one looks at large-scale networks like telecommunication networks or transport networks, um, as these have become uh, more efficient and more globalized, they have certainly had... As a, as a consequence, too, that when failures happen, the failures may be rarer, but when they happen, they extend over a larger area, have more consequence. And, and you talked about coming from a mathematical background, a, a statistician, and going into the Department of, of Transport, and, and then wanting to, to know more about uh, networks and, and construction and becoming more efficient. Does that application of the academic mind help you assess risk better? Um, well, it, it certainly gives me an interest in it. I mean, it, it, so let's give an example of, the, of, of, of what I meant about the larger scale risks. Um, that we, as we drive around, have more and more information. We have information about where accidents are. We have sat-nav systems. We may have real-time information about delays. Um, you know, in the old days, as I was often told when I was in the Department of Transport by people that were involved with dealing with uh, accidents of one type or another, if an accident happened on the M4, then people were perhaps stuck stationary for a couple of hours. But as someone said to me, at least they were safe. Now what happens when an accident happens is that lots of people divert onto other roads, which are not that suitable. Um, um, that's why they were 
choosing to use the, the, the motorway in the first place because it's more suitable than the other roads. But the accident causes them to, di- to divert to less suitable roads, further accidents occur, and then there's a cascade of accidents that fan out from the initial accident. So, uh, you know, in the old days, uh, lots of people were held up on the road for quite a long time, but it didn't extend outwards geographically. Now it does. And, and you also asked us, didn't you, at the end to, to think about how they formed the railways and talked about the formation of bubbles and how actually that, that does lead to progress, whether it's in terms of computers and networks or, or, or in terms of, you know, that big push to, to, to build railways all, yes. all over the world. Um, does explanation help if we, you know, to dig down and look at what causes these bubbles and how we react? Well, I think uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And um, I suppose the question I was asking of, of the people that are knowledgeable about this is to what extent the bubbles of the past were... were um, it, you know, it's hindsight allowing us to say it's a bubble. If there's a new technology that comes along... Um, so a colleague, Andrew Adlisko, has done some marvellous work on, um, on, the, on, the, on the railway manias of the early 1800s, the first half of the uh, 19th century. Um, a new technology comes along. It's quite hard at the time to predict what its total consequence can, can be. And it um, uh, may well transform the economic system of the country. It may well be sensible to invest in it. Sometimes we're looking with hindsight and um, our attitude to risk. If we were talking about a horse race that happened last week, we know perfectly well that one horse won it, that some... uh, some betters back the winning horse, others back the losing horse, and we have a we have a comprehension that before the the, the race was ru- was run, the odds probably were reasonable across the horses, and that one was going to win. Um, but when we look back at uh, technological innovations and the consequences, we sometimes uh, hindsight lets us see what the subsequent story was and we presume it was always going to be like that. But the, the, but the point is of course that in the early days of a new technology um, often these bubbles are very important in order to produce investment um, and we have benefited from railway investment that was prompted by an early bubble we have benefited by the investment in uh, telecommunications infrastructure it may have caused several companies to go to go broke but the, um, the infrastructure that was laid down is used. In this global financial crash age, organisations are placing greater emphasis on the values that drive those organisations. Alan Smith, Global Head of Risk Strategy, HSBC, comments in a personal capacity. If it's one thing that the crisis has taught us is the need for humility, that some of the brightest and best minds got risk management wrong. And that points to us really thinking more widely, realizing that risk can't be just driven by models, but actually has to be driven by judgment. And at the end of the day, judgment is human. And so does that mean the models themselves have changed? Because, you know, that was the big disappointment after the crash, that that people thought these these models were infallible, they were based on math systems. And, And then we found there was a human element that people didn't understand. If you like the greed, the unpredictability of the system. I think that's right. I think I should, before talking about um, the need for change, I think it is important to recognize that models are an important tool. Even though they've failed, that does not negate the fact that it is important to have some systematic and disciplined framework to try to understand risk. And at this point in time, models models are one of those best tools. Having said that, the world has changed significantly. 
And that's been for a number of reasons, whether it's changes in individual behaviour, whether it's changes in macroeconomic arrangements, the way in which trades operates. And that has caused us to revisit models and also makes us realise that in such an environment, models can break down and we need to have judgement and supplement it by other things. And you also talked about people's relationships with their earnings because that's very much what people have looked like. You know, in the wider climate, it's called the bankers' bonuses or Sir Fred Goodwin. There was a lot of discontent about the earnings of bankers. I think there, there are two dimensions to earnings. There's earnings around what actually those institutions sought um, in terms of returns on equity. And there was a disconnect between that and underlying economic growth. And then there is a, an aspect of reward for performance. And one of the key things is that performance must be risk-based. And that debate, that scrutiny that's going on is an understandable and important one to make sure that in a dynamic free market economy that earnings are linked that earnings are linked to performance and linked to, to, to driving sustainable and responsible behaviour. And I think it's a, an important debate which is playing out right now. Managing risk in the future won't just take intelligence. Decision makers will need wisdom too. Alan Smith again, commenting personally. There was that, that story of, from um, Lyndon Johnson where when he was reflecting on how bright his cabinet was because all of them were the youngest to do something or the first to do something and he went to his his political mentor, the speaker of, of the US House and he told Lyndon Johnson something which was really quite reflective he said, yes Lyndon they may be every much as intelligent as you say they are but I'd be a lot happier if one of them had at least run for sheriff at least once and that captures what is so important, the need not just to be intelligent but to be wise. And I think for us that is the biggest challenge, that we've we've got a lot of intelligence as risk managers, maybe have not used it as well as we should, and really in seeking to to, to to want to do next, based on those tough experiences that we've learned from, to move from being intelligence to being wise as we face the challenges ahead. And in that post-global financial crash culture, the managers may have swung too far the other way now. They stared at free money and didn't take it, says Dr John Coates, Senior Research Fellow, Cambridge Judge Business School. What we found in our research, which was conducted on a trading floor, um, was well, scientific findings that corroborated an initial hunch I had when I was actually a trader myself running a trading desk on Wall Street, and that was that people's risk preferences shift pro-cyclically. They take on um, too much risk during the bubble, in fact, irrational amounts of risk, um, and in the crisis, they become irrationally risk-averse. So yes, it does look like people's um, risk preferences shift pro-cyclically, and we think that actually has the effect of morphing a bull market into a bubble and a bear market into a crash. And and you talked about baboons and how people had studied human behaviour and and looked at, at, you know, how communities um, uh, other than humans sort of reacted in crisis and what they did. And and do you think that we as humans 
display the same tendencies as the animal kingdom? I ask the question because we heard that wonderful presentation from, from Dr. Knapp comparing us to primates. Well, certainly the animal models are a very elegant place to start, um, particularly when we're studying circuits in the brain that um, originate with either the brain stem or the limbic system. Um, but we do have a much larger prefrontal cortex, so we have the, um, the cognitive wherewithal to uh, dampen a lot of these impulses. That doesn't mean we're always successful. Um, if anything, I think a lot of the assumptions made within finance and economics assume that we have perfect control over these impulses. So I think the, these subjects have to incorporate um, more of the findings from the animal models. Those changes in mood that may now make the traders and markets risk-adverse need reappraisal, says Coates. After all, rain breaks at Wimbledon do serve a purpose. Oh, of course. During the, during the credit crisis, people, the, 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 the trading community had become so irrationally risk-averse they weren't even touching classic arbitrage opportunities like cash-and-carry trades, which is where a, a trade where you buy a bond, you sell a futures contract, lock up the financing, and there was like a quarter to a half point profit in this trade with no risk at all. It's the sort of trade we haven't seen in 20 years since these exchanges were um, invented and, uh, and, um, and, and under, figured out and understood. So, I mean, you can't get much more irrational than that, staring at free money and not taking it. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me then that the financial community was not able to buy risk assets um, and pull us out of the, the trough. We needed the help of the state to come in and, and lead the traders out of the slough of despond. And do you think we'll ever get back to normality, or is there such a, a thing as normality? People talked about the importance of bankers, accountants taking holidays, not using their BlackBerry. You said that we have rain breaks at Wimbledon, and, and that changes play. Is there such a thing as normality? Can we return to it? Well, I think there's such a thing as memory. Um, and the case of the, the, the Great Crash and Great Depression that left scars on a generation of people that lingered until, I'd say, until about the 80s. Um, recently, we don't seem to be learning from any of these crises. And in fact, we've got compensation schemes and risk management systems within the banks which um, give people an incentive to forget a crisis as soon as it's over. The University of Cambridge Centre for Risk Studies second annual meeting, the human dimension of risk, then moved on to consider how policymakers set policy. Dr Simon Singh, TV director, author and science journalist, is heading a campaign to reform Britain's libel laws. I think the rest of the world has realised it for a long time, that English libel law is very backward in terms of being oppressive to free speech, hostile to writers, overly friendly to claimants who want to silence critics. The rest of the world has seen this for a long time. Um, in Britain, we've only come to realise it perhaps in the last couple of years. And, and I think science has played a particular role in galvanising interest in this issue because the way science progresses is through argument and debate. You know, somebody puts forward an idea at a conference, other people challenge it, we have an argument, and after a year or two or three, we figure out we get a little bit closer to the truth. And in the last two years, we've seen numerous cases involving scientists, doctors, medical researchers, where 
ideas have been suppressed or attempted to be suppressed through libel threats or actual libel actions. So, for example, Peter Wilmshurst, a cardiologist, is currently being sued for libel for criticising data around a new heart device. Uh, ben Goldacre, the Guardian journalist and doctor, was sued for libel uh, two and a half years ago for criticising a vitamin salesman who was trying to promote vitamins in South Africa um, to, to treat HIV. Uh, Henrik Thompson, a Danish radiographer, was sued by GE Healthcare in London for raising concerns over the risks of an imaging agent. So you know, I, I could go on and on. But as you can tell, the problem with libel is that when somebody has something to say, it will be a matter of public interest often, they will feel very reluctant to do that for fear of being threatened with libel. But while journalists, newspapers, celebrities and citizens have signed up to www.libelreform.org, our reputation for libel tourism is growing. We have Lord McNally in the Ministry of Justice developing a libel reform bill as we speak. I, I heard him speak just last week and uh, that draft defamation bill will be published in March. Um, we're all keen to see how radical it is. It's going to need to be radical in order to protect free speech in this country. But just finally, um, Simon, why did you as an individual run a risk to fight this liable action against you? Well, I, I, I'm fortunate. I mean, back then I was fortunate in the, being in the fortunate position of, of being a freelancer. I don't have an employee. I don't have employers. Um, I, I'm independent. I, I had a had the resources, had the financial resources and the time resources that enabled me to fight this case. I knew that if I lost it, I, it would be incredibly painful and I'd take a massive financial hit, but I wouldn't be destroyed or bankrupted. So in that situation, because I could um, defend my article and because I believed that my article was fair and important, then I ended up thinking, well, then I really have to defend it. I don't have much of a choice. For most people, if you're a, a a blogger or an academic or an editor of a small journal, the question of trying to defend your writing just doesn't even occur because you cannot even afford to do it. As the speakers and delegates left, the human dimension of risk, perception, behaviour and decision-making in Risk Management Conference, their pooled knowledge had created better awareness of the real challenges facing policymakers, managers and organisations today. Natural disasters, man-made perils or financial crashes need a better understanding of how we as humans react to those risks in the hope that our responses will lessen the damage that could occur. Microinsurance for the poor in Asia is one tangible result of those thought processes to date. No doubt more solutions are on their way. Mm -hmm.